Welcome to Designing for Students, the podcast that explores the intersection of design and higher education. I'm Rich Prowse. I'm the Director of Design at Content Design London and a higher education specialist. And in a previous life, I was the Deputy Director of Service Design at the University of Bath. And I'm Rich West, a freelance user experience consultant specializing in content. Over 20 years, I've worked in a number of higher education institutions, as well as government and the private sector. It's the beginning of the new academic year, and we're thrilled to have you join us for our very first show. Designing for Students is a limited podcast series where you will get to hear voices from around the world. From perspectives on leadership to hands-on skills, our goal is to inspire you to create experiences that help students succeed. So get ready to deep dive into the world of Designing for Students. We're brand new, so subscribe now so you don't miss out on any new episodes. I'm excited to announce our very first guest, Ayala Gordon. Ayala is the Associate Director of Digital User Experience at the University of Southampton. Since 2018, she's led an ambitious digital transformation program that puts the users at the center of every product and service. Ayala, I think I met you back in 2018. Was it Content Ed? I think you're right. I think it would have been a content ed uh, or maybe IWMW in Kent the year yeah. before 2017. Yeah. For those who don't know, IWMW was a conference for higher education digital professionals, affectionately known as a Wim Away, which I sadly miss. Ayala, it's lovely that you can join us today. And on that late, let's uh, get stuck in. Could you tell us a little about yourself and your current role? I'm the Associate Director of Digital User Experience. So it's a bit of a mouthful, but what that means is that I lead a high-performing product team. They are responsible for delivering critical services to external user groups and stakeholders. So for example, admission applications or collaborators for research and enterprise. These services and products are all operating at scale, supports various user groups and their interaction with the university. The ideal situation is to make these interactions as simple as possible. So basically, in short, my role enables making usable and accessible products and services using technology in an enabling way. And how did you get to that role? By accident. <laughs> there, there, there are elements that are part of my personality that probably attract me to this kind of roles, but also uh, quite a long career in uh, various digital roles, uh, from digital marketing all the way into uh, delivery and product. And so part of marketing, I was doing a lot of product, uh, but in commercial setting, a lot of stuff that I think I was doing then, I didn't realize was user-centered design. And uh, it made sense to me when I was introduced key concepts around UA. Well, now it's more strategic and scaling of the whole thing. And I have to ask, what's the personality that you think fits that role? What's, what is about your personality when you said that? You have to be a little bit cheeky. Uh, I had a bit of an unusual upbringing, so I had exposure to a lot of different kinds of people and it's definitely helped in some of the communication challenges uh, in the different digital worlds that I did. In my late teens, I was exposed more to technology and it made me think about how good or how bad it can be or how it might impact people when it's implemented. And I think you do need to be a quite reflective and empathetic kind of person to do these sort of roles. 
in, in digital leadership. I think that's a trait I see in people too. When you're working in human-centered design, you need that level of empathy to understand your users. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that uh, nothing is ever straightforward. You know, you can always see lots of different lenses, but that's what makes you a, a people's person, you know. So the program you were working on was called OneWeb. Tell us a little bit more about what it set out to achieve. Yeah, sure. So OneWeb, it was conceptually already a thing when I joined the university uh, back in 2017. And there was a, a thought behind it that they wanted to consolidate a lot of the different uh, websites that they had into one. Previous projects didn't necessarily have a desired effect or benefits. So OneWeb was a digital transformation program. I was tasked in making it happen. So um, it's officially started in 2019 um, and it's officially ended in July, 2021. And then uh, moved into the whole business as usual. I'm using mm. very loose comments because nothing is usual about business as usual. It was a very ambitious program of work as we followed the early work of GDS. So really about taking user needs into the heart of design and then making a really large scale change. Once we figure out the problems, it was totally revolutionary to how things were done from um, project initiation, the whole approach, agile rather than waterfall and the ideas of funding teams, not projects of knowledge transfer principle. So those two and a half years were really quite fast and, and very, very tough from all kinds of levels. And so it was about re-engineering the way we deliver services to the people that need to access the information. And I know one web is a bit misleading. It's got a web in it. It was so much more than just a website, but we started with a website. So you talked about being inspired by the early work of GDS. Now I can think of maybe five universities in the UK that embraced those ideas. So I'm interested in understanding how the program was received. What were the challenges? There, there were a lot of challenges. So none of it was straightforward. It really needed a lot of explanation and a lot of communication. I was really lucky that we had a senior leadership at the time that really could see and understood the problems and the whole idea was to use the tools that the university has, like a website. Um, in a strategic way, but the issues were that there were some really fundamental problems that needed fixing so it can work operationally. There were a lot of issues from user experience, accessibility, management. Or when we first started with a become an undergraduate student journey, and when you started auditing all of the content that was related to that, we had something like over 1,000 undergraduate courses. There was no maintenance of it. There was no repurposing, you know, so you ended up in situations where actually your most important products and courses that people will choose to do are being duplicated hundreds of times. We don't offer that many courses. The website was used a little bit like a repository. We had multiple sites. So I think at some point we counted over 4,000. We had a lot of pages, basically endless URLs. was a comment that was made that our web estate was larger than the government's before they started their transformation. It's not just about normal migration. It needed a proper sort of look of it. So how did you overcome these challenges? 
right? You have to look at things holistically. So we did quite a lot of user research. And every time we started a project, like let's say if it was um, undergraduate or postgraduate or PhD or application process, we would start with the evidence. So uh, we will have a whole piece of work around just collating what we already have in place, uh, anything for any secondary research, any uh, analytic, but then also doing the user research interviews, finding the needs, you know, of the relevant uh, user group, really getting to the bottom of what those needs are. That sounds amazing. I know how many projects that take place that don't have user research, which is a really important building block before you even begin to think about the product or the service, it's amazing you were able to spend the time that you really needed to do that and develop those user needs, those user journeys, which will help inform the decisions you'll need to take later on. What I'm interested in understanding a little bit more about is what you may have done differently if you had the chance again. Lots of things that I would do differently. I think it's really easy to forget sometimes what we did achieve. And uh, I wish we celebrated more. It's not that we didn't, okay? But, you know, you in day-to-day challenges and, and sometimes you need to be really programmatic about what can be done and what can't be done. When to reflect back, uh, I think it would be fair to say that there was definitely a limited uh, understanding of the scale and how it will change things and how change itself will happen. For example, some things that um, you are looking to make changes to help might affect other departments or other people within the universities. Maybe it was understood by me, but maybe I didn't make it as explicit as I need to. I'm just going to use a really simple thing, but now when you're going to be updating certain amount, this is in data now, this is not in content management. You really need to have really good data. Maybe I think sometimes a boards need to be more realistic and they need to really understand like some of those issues, and it's not just down to a couple of people on the board and to push those changes. Maybe I think it's really important that board members are not fixated on the solution and really understanding sort of the outcomes. Otherwise, the whole project or program could just be shifted in the wrong direction. Okay, so now we find you on the other side. You've been through this ambitious project. What was the result? Yeah, so we had a lot of benefits realization and I wish I dug out more data before I came here because it's really great, actually. We had a whole list of benefits realization that we were measured on and throughout the program. And also at the end, we had to produce sort of quite a lot of conclusion for the board. Like in terms of the, the metrics for applications, for example, the people who go through the journey, how it's been designed, you know, no dead ends in the journey. We've achieved a lot there. We managed to implement a lot of stuff that is data-driven, KPIs around quality and around some of the management. What we created was a smaller, more powerful engine for the university. If I'm going to use one of my delivery manager's metaphors. <laughs> so it really is working so much better and we can see it immediately. I love that analogy, the idea of a smaller, more powerful engine for the university. Plus, I think anyone who's listening who works in this area will definitely recognize the description you had of how it was to start with. You know, I think universities in particular uh, have that risk of just their web estate just growing and growing and you yeah. don't know what's there and who's got access to what. And 
Yeah, I think that probably feels very common. And you talked about wanting to celebrate more. I just wondered what things you pick out as things to celebrate. Well, when you work through transformation, and it, it takes a lot of energy from people. It's really hard. We delivered a lot of it during COVID, so and we were not able to meet together in person. But what we did do, we did a lot of online and social things, you know, to bring us together. Anything from murder mysteries to... With an IT on the digital team. No, it was very funny. Is it through things like that that you kept the momentum going? Because obviously with a project that long, it must be really easy to start to flag and uh, lose that drive. Yeah, I think we're really lucky that the people we attract, we try to attract as diverse pool of people as possible, and, and they are diverse. And I think there is something in characteristics that is common to a lot of people who work in digital. And there's something about curiosity, I would say, you know, uh, people really want to learn all the time. So no one's ever stagnate or if someone is really eager, other people can try to follow that. So that's been good. I'd be really interested in understanding a little bit more about the conditions that you need for a project like this to succeed. But basically when we started OneWeb, there was an ambition to take a really bolder step. Okay, let's turn off. 4,000 website, make something simpler in one website. And that's where the prize is. It's always has been, but it's a really tough change step. I've had conference talk about uh, the Goldilocks principles. and It's really about having that fine balance of the just right scenario. And it really is about mandate and practicality and ambition and patience and lots of other conditions. And how do you navigate the, what I'm guessing is the inevitable politics of a project like this? You don't. I <laughs> <laughs> thought you might have the secret, damn. No, no, no secrets at all. And when I joined the university, I remember someone said to me, you know, it's like your, your popularity would be like the stock market. Uh, you can't always maintain. <laughs> Uh, high levels like that. And, and it's true. I would say your value will be high one day and then the next week it's as low as possible. And then you need to work your way up and figuring out how, how to make your, your stock value to go up again, if it makes sense. So how did you navigate the complexity of a university? OneWeb was a really big program and uh, it was all about navigating the very complex landscape of stakeholders. And getting to know people on an individual and departmental level, right at the start, I can't remember how many meetings I, I had, but in a single month, I think there was a point where I was counting something like 32 meetings or something like that, just to land the concept. So I did that for a long period of time, and that was really hard and time consuming, but it really needed to be done during program delivery. You know, I had to be really different. I had to... Um, move uh, to a completely different state of mind. Uh, you know, there is an end game here. I have to be a bit more ruthless, a bit more focused with my time. COVID happened anyway. Everyone went online. And so things did change during that. I think the real challenge is with senior leaders and spending time with them so they understand what you do. And there is a reality in this job that you really cannot please everyone, especially if information is not based on evidence and it's most driven by perceptions or subjectivity. I think like bringing services 
around the person is a really big deal for organizations. People don't fully understand the complexity behind it, even before you designed it and thought about it differently. And I think the reason why it's like that is because um, technology is such a big part of our life. You have your phone in your back pocket, you know, it's a mini computer. Um, it's actually a powerful computer. And, you know, we're becoming really comfortable with it. So people just assume that they understand all of it. And maybe this is why all the quick fixes that more senior people may be suggesting think it's really straightforward or appealing. Oh, you really do need to spend the time and do the insight right at the start. Uh, because otherwise, you know, you're not going to get the fundamentals right. And one of the principles of, I don't know if it's Didius or someone else, do it once and do it properly kind of thing. I noticed that you've developed your own principles, which I absolutely love. And these very much reflect the spirit of GDS. But what I would like to know is how you developed them and how they informed your work. They, they really did come directly from the work that we were doing. So, you know, we have one specifically about journeys and it's about like no dead ends. You know, a lot of those principles came directly from observations and from the work that we were doing. Because when you observe, you can then design for that when another department, for example, requires some work, we will ask them to describe how they would like to improve this information for users or this element for users. So it's making it really tangible. We want to make it easier for potential business partners to find out who we are, how we work and the services we can offer them. Um, instead of just asking for an output, it's, it's about outcome, but they are universal standards. So we can apply them to everything we do, regardless of the channel or the product. They, they really do instruct the choices the team make uh, when we produce the work. So um, it's guidedly principles to know whether you're doing a good job or not. It's interesting. You talk about how your team use them as anchor points. And in my experience, those anchors are really important as they bring you back to universal truths that you've learned on your way. So it's lovely to see them there in your work. But what I really love about them is that they have been informed by your work, but also they are used by you to communicate the value that you bring when you work with other people. So, so one of the things that we did and quite recently, we embedded it also into the planning um, of um, a project. We had a project initiation and we wanted to make sure that all of this is captured. So it's really clear what we then, what is the problem here that we're trying to solve? And that's a recent thing and it worked really well. It helps product and it helps content design and it helps a lot, of, a lot of the other disciplines as well. So that, that's been really good. Fantastic. I'm interested in how you ensure the work you do is inclusive and accessible. So we have our principles that they already baked in into all our standards. And there are also really a lot of opportunities to improve on all, especially when it comes to working with other teams on this. So we don't end up like fixing things later on. I'm very lucky, actually, that we have a really good uh, working relationship with our IT department. So uh, the teams that are responsible to work with us, they care about it too. It's definitely not perfect, uh, but we, we are working to improve it. Uh, one of our principles 
uh, make sure everyone can use it confidently it means that we need to do research that includes people with a range of access needs and from a range of backgrounds. And we are currently working on setting up something for that specifically. And it's been in the making for a long time. I've done some small collaborations with academics who lead in this area. And so, yeah, we really do need to consider accessibility from the start and the work throughout. There is more work to be done, but definitely uh, conversations are, uh, are happening. So that's mm. good. In descriptions of the work you've done, you've placed an importance on environmental sustainability, which I thought was particularly interesting. I don't know if you want to talk about that. I mean, I wouldn't say that it will necessarily spot of one web, but um, environmental sustainability and user needs and answering the right questions go hand in hand, in my opinion, with user-centered design. If you replace something big and complex, that's not many people enjoy using or use at all with a smaller, more powerful engine, uh, using the same metaphor from earlier, that actually helps people that will also help with sustainability. We have a repository of user needs that we collated from all the different discoveries that we did, from all the different uh, other work that we carried out, and they are all documented and uh, being used in performance with KPIs. It means it's not agnostic to just digital. So by creating those repositories, you are also saving time and you making the organization more sustainable in the first place. If people keep repurposing and using and same for like design system and components that you created. Jeremy McGovern wrote a lot about it and wrote a book about it. And, but when we delivered one web, so I did get in touch with him and I brought another university professor who was really interested in one of the biggest costs that is um, associated with carbon emission is actually the creation of the content itself. And I think that's what people forget. Digital is really not free. Um, but because we live with technology, we tend to think it's really, that it's easy, that it's disposable, but everything carries carbon emission and uh, the maintenance side of content and the creation of content is a really big contributor. Um, so we, we definitely have a long way to go here, um, but we are making a difference by re-engineering what we do. And as a result of it, we're hoping to build things that are more sustainable and more uh, cost-effective as well. You published a letter to your team at the end of the project and you put it up on your blog. And there's a section in there that starts, imagine your employees are volunteering for you. I loved that. And I just wondered if you could, you could chat about what you were talking about there. It was an emotional time. It was the end of the program. So just to give you context, the bit on the blog is the edited version without the swear words. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> it was a really passionate letter that was longer and I sent it in a pack. So it was. Not hand delivery, but I packed it all because it was again COVID. And when we finished, we were about 50 people. We had um, finisher t-shirts for, for all the one webers. And we had stickers, of course, about making things harder for users is selfish and governance isn't a dirty word and stuff like that. Those t-shirts were amazing. And, and I should have worn that today, you see. And yeah. <laughs> Um, and um, the letter was 
for to every single person who, who, who was in the team at the time and uh, with a little something written by me right at the end for each of them. And so what's behind it was, first of all, it was for me to say thank you for putting so much blood, sweat and tears into this work and I really appreciate it. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. So here you go. Here is a, a little, a little something for you, but also for me, it was about not taking individuals for granted and really treating them with respect. So the whole thing around volunteering is volunteers don't do something for money and, and they have a greater autonomy in what they do. They decide when they're going to participate in an activity or what they will contribute to. And volunteers normally engage for a prolonged period of time and they feel engaged when they are actually contributed to something meaningful. That, that sort of resonated with me and I thought, like my team totally did that, but also you need to ask yourself, I think as a leader in a senior position, will your people show up to work tomorrow if they were not paid? And so to me, it was about the culture and about the work environment that I'm creating for people. And so people feel safe to come to work, people that feel like they have the autonomy and, and that they feel the work has meaning and that they are allowed to work in the right way. And I think this is the difference, allowed to work in the right way. So I wouldn't say it's just about letting people do what they want to do. It's really about, we, have, we all have a goal, we all have a mission to achieve, but it's about, again, clearly defined priorities in a roadmap. It's about ensuring that they have the right conditions to operate and to operate in and contribute to and autonomy and empowerment. That speaks to me, uh, the idea that when you work in higher education, it's not the best paid profession. So people are there because of the love of what they do. So that fills my heart with a lot of joy. And that is so lovely. Warm and fuzzy. It is warm and fuzzy. But what's nice about it is it's the environment that you wanted to create, which is why I love it so much. So you've come to the end of OneWeb with that letter. What I'm really interested in is how you took that work and embedded that as business as usual. Yeah, yeah, that's a good segue for that. I think I alluded to it earlier when we were talking about uh, involvement of leadership and some of the elements that are really important for our work. So these kinds of changes really need to be supported by governance, policy and strategy. And not all of it is in place. Some of it is work in progress. And the people part of it is really, really uh, a tricky element to it because uh, this is where top leadership really needs to be clear it, if it wishes to tackle the challenges or not. Um, and it's totally okay to decide not to tackle those challenges. Uh, so I think transparency and understanding of all the risks associated with the investment that's already been made um, is very important. And I think there is uh, something there about uh, making sure this is not a one-off exercise. Uh, so we have to keep engaging. We have to keep understanding what matters most to people. Uh, Moving on from that, what's the most surprising change you've seen that's improved the student experience? There were quite a few interesting things. Um, language, actually, I would say, is a really big deal. We, we assume that people who come 
to a research university, understand our structures and jargon. And I guess, well, they don't just clarity of language in some areas that we were able to work more closely with has been a real game changer in from the data on experiences. And what we can see from our web survey is that generally speaking, international audiences score our website uh, higher than any other group. So, you know, we need to drill more into the detail uh, exactly why it's happening, but we have a few really good hypotheses and around it in the clarity of language. Wow. And there were other things like some components that we designed early on as part of the admission journeys uh, still score really highly and in comparison to competitors too. We introduced a few elements that just made usability and scannability really easy for people. We're still getting comments on it in user research. We're still uh, we're able to see, obviously, the performance of what is happening on the website from analytics point of view, but the why, the behavioral data that come from user research or usability testing is, is still uh, suggesting that they work really, really well. Oh, I love it. Uh, with my content hat on, that, that answer makes me very, very happy. Um, what are the biggest challenges then to improving the student experience? What are your observations there? We kind of touched on some of the challenges um, from earlier, but I would say more specifically for higher education, there is a, a silo nature to how people organize themselves and how the work is divided. And I will also say that there is culture and ways of working. And so it's more about sometimes about outputs rather than outcomes or wants rather than needs and silos. Uh, I think our probably a situation that is happening at, in higher education, maybe because we are not set up in, in a way that is very cross-cutting. So you have to, to identify every single stakeholder group, for example, that you may need to work with. Uh, everything is very vertical. So it means that the flow of information and data doesn't really happen always in an efficient way. And culture, I mention that because I do think higher education, especially, you know, in some of the big, big universities are quite traditional and approaching services in that way. So it's really some, a complete separation, for example, between what happens offline and what's happened online. I think as a result of it, a lot of people keep operating on their own and using different methodology, duplicating each other's work when it's not actually needed. I'm not, by the way, pointing out thinking, I know it's a reality. Everyone, definitely everyone's trying to do their very best. And you have to be asking, where is the value? And is it worth in investing, you know, all of your people, all of your capacity in that particular way? So I think that's just an interesting question overall. I'm hoping that a, a lot of universities, you know, they have digital strategies now. It actually will bring a really positive change in the more efficient ways of working. I'm hoping that with the introduction of more digital data and technology, you know, you, you effectively will be looking at it more holistically mm. overall. That's sort of picture of the silos, I think, again, very familiar to anyone in universities. And I guess part of it is that nervousness that people in those departments or schools have about what does it mean if I give up this control and what does it mean if 
this changes and I guess that's where your conversations are coming you know you talked about you know your 32 conversations in a, in a month and I guess part of that's going to be about reassuring people and explaining what you're planning and why you're doing it's interesting because it shows how digital doesn't really respect organizations boundaries or structures it tends to defy them and pushes and challenges organizations in ways that they wouldn't expect stepping back how do you think we get the sector to recognize that it needs to change to meet the challenges it will face from digital or different forms of competition that will develop as a result of digital technologies? As you can imagine, I have lots of opinions on that, but maybe I'll stick with one. I think for me is why wouldn't you want to create something that is right first time round? That's the key question for me. Wouldn't you want to create something that is accessible or works for everyone? I mean, to me, it makes much more sense financially and operationally. I think that it's not exactly accurate view that if you do use a center design, it's going to take a lot longer. There are more stages. It might take longer, but actually it will yield better results longer term. And you will not need to change your technology within two years or you know, things will work better overall. But it back to those key elements that all needs to align the budget, the mandate, the ambition to make it just right, to allow for something like one web was or, or like operating more in a user-centered design kind of way. So I think when it's done to financially or operationally, I don't think people can argue with that, but to do that, you really have to do the hard work. So that's the cultural change that needs to happen and last beyond a single program of work. That's really interesting. The idea that something leads to last beyond that program is very not university, but often on to the next thing. Whereas what you're talking about is that idea that we are never done. And, and that's very digital because actually yeah. reality is it's, it is never done. The job is never done. And why wouldn't people be comfortable with it? They're used to updating their software on their mobile phone, you know, so, so. Yeah. Things are never done. So it needs to be oh, everyone's mindset so we don't end up uh, fixing, uh, you know, things that stakeholders may think are a problem, but not actually a problem. But we actually concentrate on what will deliver the most value to the user and the university really overall. So I think this is the change in mindset that needs to happen. And it's all about continuous improvement. But then you also need to be set up for it internally. And that's another big change it is about that focus that continuous change which you're right you do need to kind of be set up and be able to deliver that which i think is that is probably the challenge for the sector as well and also individual universities last one for me and i think you've already touched on loads of this actually already because it's a big one which is just what what are the challenges do you think that higher education faces as a whole in, in my opinion, it's just a matter of time until there will be a really big disruption in the sector. And I, I just think that there are lots of different challenges. Some of them will be the type of uh, degrees the sector offers. Um, I think whether we prepare our students to sustainable future careers and the value for money from a degree. And these are just sort of like a few things top of my head. Although there is a real community around higher education, I also think sometimes uh, the sector doesn't view 
and the student needs as much as they need to. So I feel there will be a shift and there has to be a shift in, in some of the digital ecosystem for learning and knowledge creation. I also think that education will not be linked to geography. And, and I think it would be more radical than it is now just by simply offering online learning. And of course, you know, I haven't even mentioned things like VR and all of those new technologies that will shift perceptions, that will shift um, attitudes uh, of learners. So, so for me, actually, uh, it's really about how do we uh, design for simplicity there. Again, how, how people interact with our university services as a whole, but that also requires a shift in how we treat students. Uh, some people may not want to think about them as customers, but they are customers. So it's, it's going to be quite interesting, I think, to watch that. And, and again, how do you empower people and students in that case to manage their own, their own education? And I think there is a lot of uh, elements around that. And back to, again, like what we've discussed around skills and engagement um, and the way we engage with users uh, has to change because what people do as opposed to what they say are two very different things. So if we develop something, you know, to develop something simple, you really need to understand and observe people and see what they struggle with. So recruiting people with the right skills to, to do all of this kind of work is really important. I think that's really interesting you touching on that idea that education potentially could be no longer attached to geography. You know, you say the word AI. I was at a conference back in 2019 where they were talking about AI to support learning and the, and the interesting things they were already doing in a preschool, their first schools and stuff to help support kids. And it's, it's really, really interesting because that shift is coming and you, you're talking about it as the idea that you're right, that actually this needs to be student or human centered in order to meet those needs and also build things that actually help support the learner or the, the student through that process of acquiring knowledge, developing skill. It's very different from how maybe universities think about students. Uh, they have needs, they you know, have to build to meet those needs far further than yeah. they're thinking they need to go. Yeah, I guess yeah. if you're, if you're user centered, then you're much less likely to be taken by surprise when these things suddenly yeah. change because it's going to be led by the users. And I think it's back to, again, to user-centered design and agile are two components that go very well hand in hand. So again, yeah. if you have a big disruption and you are agile and you're, but when I'm saying agile, I mean, truly agile. Yeah. So you set up in that way and you have the skills and all of these kind of things. It's very, you very quickly able to make a difference, you know, and, and shift and pivot quickly. So. Just bringing us into a close now, what would be the one thing that your future self would tell your past self? I think so. I would say don't take yourself too seriously. Trust your judgment. And I would say that design is political. Who knew? That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. I want to give a special thanks to Ayala for taking our part in our very first episode and thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. We have some incredible guests lined up who we hope will continue to inspire. If you have any suggestions, topics you'd like us to cover or guests you'd love to hear from, then please reach out to us. 
We value your feedback. We want to create content you'll love. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate your support and look forward to continuing this journey together.